dedicated to helping you explore the Golden State's unique history, culture, and environment. I'm Damian Vassage, and I'm your host. I want to start off this new episode, first of all, by apologizing, since, as you can probably tell, I'm uh, fighting a little bit of a cold, so as you can hear, my nose is a little bit stuffed up, my throat is gravelly, but I hope that that won't distract too much from this topic that we're going to explore today, which is the story of land grants in early California. Now, As you know, California land is a big subject, and it seems to be getting bigger every day. And the the struggles over who owns land in California, how much land costs, where boundaries are, etc., I think you can say all have their origin back in the Spanish and Mexican times and especially beginning with the practice of Spanish land grants, which later became uh, greatly expanded under the Mexican government. So today, we're going to talk a little bit about what that process was, how it began, and how some of these uh, great, huge ranchos that we know about today actually came about. What was the process that took place? But before we do that, we need to go back in time to um, the Middle Ages. The laws and customs about who could own land and how it could be used in Alta California originated in medieval Spain. In particular, the most important medieval law code was called the Siete Partidas, or the Seven Chapters. And it was written by King Alfonso X of Castile who lived from 1252 to 1284. Alfonso was a really important character in Spanish medieval history, and he's known as Alfonso the Sabio, or the wise one, because not only did he write laws, but it was thanks to him that a large number of works of Greek and Arabic learning were translated into Latin so that people in Europe could read them. He was also a very important king in Castile because he really made the Castilian language, what we know as Spanish today, um, an important language for law, for learning, and for literature. Before that time, Latin was the most important language that people used for studying for culture, for writing laws. And so Alfonso really brought Castilian into its own. And Castilian later became, as Castile became the most dominant um, kingdom on the Spanish, on the Iberian Peninsula, Castilian became the dominant language. And of course, it spread to the New World with um, Spanish exploration and settlement. As the Spanish later built an empire in the Americas over three centuries, the laws it used to govern those areas evolved. 
Perhaps the most important legal code for the Americas was called the Laws of the Indies. And these were a, um, a set of laws that had evolved over almost 250 years of Spanish dominion in the Americas. And they regulated the relationships between the Spanish and other peoples in the Americas, especially native peoples, African peoples, including the use of land. And the Laws of Indies marked out where towns could be founded, um, how far settlements of Spanish Europeans needed to be away from uh, Indian settlements or Indian um, cities and towns. And basically, those are the laws that ultimately governed land use in California, in Alta California, and also Baja California, when the Spanish arrived in um, North America, in, in what is today the United States. So in the 18th century, when Spain began to send uh, soldiers to Alta California, they didn't come just with the idea of establishing military bases or what were known as presidios. What they wanted to do was create communities, especially farming communities, and those farming communities could at the same time, um, according to the Spanish idea, grow enough uh, food uh, to feed also the presidios. Now, many of the soldiers who came to Alta California were married or became married. If they were already married, their families soon joined them. Or if they married uh, local women, including indigenous women, then they would start families. The Spanish government wanted people to create farms that would help to grow the population, to grow the Spanish population in the territory, and as I mentioned, provide food for the presidios. So in 1773, so this is four years after the first mission and presidio are founded in San Diego, 1769. The Viceroy of New Spain authorized commanders of San Diego and Monterey Presidios to distribute land to settlers and Indians as long as they didn't move too far away from the boundaries of the Presidio or the mission upon which they were already living. Now, the Viceroy is the king's representative in a particular territory or kingdom. But the viceroy's authority to authorize um, this use of land came from a law that was passed in Madrid in 1764. Before that, only the king of Spain himself had the right to grant land to individuals in the Americas. So during the time between uh, 1773 and 1821, you know, which was the 1821 being the moment of um, independence of Mexico from Spain, the Spanish government made about 30 grants of land. Now, almost all of these were to veterans of the army who had served in California and retired from military service. And that wasn't a novel thing that the Spanish invented. It went back to Roman times. It was an old tradition in, back in the Roman Empire for soldiers who had served, say, 20 years to be granted a 
um, parcel of land and to become farmers and to cultivate that land. But the first person to receive such a land grant under this new law in Spanish Alta California was a man named Manuel Butron. Now, Manuel was a soldier of the Monterey Company, so he was stationed in, in Monterey initially, and he had been a member of the Portola expedition that came north uh, from Baja California in 1769. Manuel, who was originally from Spain, and, and not all of the Spanish soldiers were from Spain. Many of them came from what is today Mexico or other parts of Latin America. Manuel married Margarita, who was a Native American neophyte who had converted to Christianity, to Catholicism, from Mission San Carlos Borromeo in what is today Carmel. In 1775, Butron requested a 140 bara parcel from Commander Rivera. Now remember, a bara is an old uh, Spanish measurement, which is about a yard, more or less. And Commander Rivera, in turn, asked the opinion of Father Junipero Serra, uh, who approved. And the commander made the grant to Butron and his wife, Margarita. Now, two years later, uh, something very important happened. In 1777, a group of colonists founded the official, the first official pueblo, or town, in Alta California. They named the town San Jose de Guadalupe, which later became the city of San Jose. They, they named it San Jose de Guadalupe because uh, the Guadalupe River ran right along where the town was founded. Now, pueblos were regulated by the laws of Indies, and they were generally accorded four square leagues of land. And a league is about four and a half thousand acres, 4,300 acres. And with that land, they were to build houses, and each um, had a small farm plot, as well as there would be land for cattle grazing. So the soldiers or settlers in the town would each receive uh, their own lot, or called a solar in Spanish, just outside the pueblo. But those lots were pretty small. Land for raising livestock, or, or farming on a larger scale, in any case, was always government property, and it was under the control of the local presidio commander. So they received these, these lots, but um, they were fairly small, and they didn't really belong to them. They were considered a part of the Presidio. Now, the first series of large land grants um, outside of Presidios or Pueblos took place in 1784. Now, these were for farms or for cattle raising, and they could be for up to several thousand acres. And they were what I would call the first real ranchos. So in order to receive a grant from the Spanish government, the petitioners had to promise that they would do no harm to anyone or, and this is important, or encroach upon non-Christian Indian lands. So if they knew that there was a Native American settlement or village nearby that wasn't part of a mission, mind you, uh, they could not... 
do any activities or, or set up a farm or ranch in that area, at least according to the law. And as I mentioned, in Spanish California, these grants were actually temporary licenses. They were more like cattle grazing permits from the king. Now, not very many of these were issued uh, under Spanish law. The situation really changed beginning in 1821 when Mexico became independent from Spain. At that point, Alta California was no longer officially part of Spain and was governed by the New Mexican Republic. And in 1824, the Mexican Congress established rules for the colonization of lands, in particular in Alta California. Now, these new laws greatly expanded the ability of non-Indian people to own land. And contrary to Spanish policy, foreigners could also now acquire land, although the law did favor Mexican citizens. The Congress limited these grants, the Mexican Congress limited these grants to 11 square leagues, approximately 50,000 acres. And one of the stipulations of the law was that no one could transfer properties to the Catholic Church. This was a law that didn't fav- was not aimed at favoring the church. It didn't favor the Catholic Church. You, couldn't pa- you could not transfer land to the church, say, when you died and, and leave it in your will. Secondly, landowners or their representatives needed to actually reside on the land and keep it cultivated. Otherwise, it would revert back to government property and the government could grant it to someone else if they so chose. Now, in 1828, the Mexican Congress updated these laws and the governors of territories received authority to grant what were considered vacant lands. This policy ushered in the era of the large ranchos in Alta California because it was up to the governor of the territory to issue the grant. And it didn't necessarily, it wasn't, didn't need to be an act of the Territorial uh, Congress. So now let's talk a little bit about uh, land grants and the missions in Alta California. Now under Spain, most of the land in coastal California from what is today more or less Sonoma County down to San Diego was under control of the missions. Now Missions were built on or near Native American lands, and according to Spanish law, they legally belonged to the Indians that lived there. Though, and this is the the big though, they were considered to be held in trust by the Spanish government until such time as the missions were to be secularized, that is, turned into towns. After Mexican independence, the Mexican government passed laws to actually bring about secularization, which was basically breaking up the mission system. And I wrote a, a piece, an article on the website about secularization. You can, you can go there and look it up, explains what that meant. But basically, according to the Mexican government, the new rules stated that a certain portion of the lands of each mission were to be given over to the Mission Indians for farming and the creation of towns. But 
the amount of land was pretty limited. Every head of family, now we're talking about Native Americans, and all single men over 21 years old would receive a parcel of land of between 100 and 400 square baras. So between uh, one and a half and seven square acres, which is not a large piece of land if you want to do any serious farming. So whatever lands were considered to be not necessary for that purpose were then declared vacant. So they could be granted to people who showed the territorial governor that they would put the land to good use, in other words, uh, farming or ranching. Governors could not make grants for land within 10 leagues, about 26 miles from the seacoast, or within 20 leagues, about 52 miles, of the borders of any foreign power. So what are the foreign powers um, in North America, or excuse me, on the West Coast? Well, uh, we have the Russians up uh, north of um, what is today uh, Sonoma, northern Sonoma County. Uh, the British were up in uh, what is today Oregon and Washington. So, and uh, to the east, well, eventually to the east, you ran into um, U.S. territory, but quite a ways away. In any case, these grants are mainly along the coastline of California and somewhat inland as well. Now, uh, in Spanish and Mexican California, not just men, but also women had the right to acquire property. Women could administer, protect, and invest their property or the, the funds associated with that property. Though married women who appointed an attorney needed their spouse's permission to do so. Unmarried women had the right to transact business, but they often selected male relatives or trusted men to represent them in the legal system. It was, after all, uh, the 19th century, and it was uh, mainly a man's world and at that point in that place. Uh, so oftentimes uh, women would choose to, to appoint somebody who could be their representative in these kind of situations. And especially if um, they were not able to read and write, they needed to appoint somebody who could do so in order to... Um, um, read, interpret, and sign documents for them. Of the over 500 land grants made in Mexican California, approximately 27 were made to women, both single women and uh, widows. Or, so the kicker oftentimes was that this requirement to develop and use the grants, the farms or ranchos that they received, sometimes wound up being more difficult for women if they were especially aged or widows unable to perform rancho chores themselves and if they didn't have money to hire workers. So oftentimes what they would do would be to send a relative or a hired hand or more to the rancho if they weren't living directly on it to operate it so that it wouldn't be taken away from them by the government. Nevertheless, some women like Juana Briones de Miranda operated ranchos of several thousand acres. And if you want to learn more about Juana Briones, I also have a, an article about her on the website. 
So then what were the steps for requesting and receiving a land grant? What if you decided that you wanted a land grant, wanted to receive a land grant? Well, there were a number of phases that the process went through and uh, things that you had to do in order to receive your grant. So first of all, you had to make a petition. You had to petition the governor of the territory. If you're in Alta California, it would be the governor of Alta California. And the petitioner would state his or her name, age, country, and profession. Remember, it was possible in Mexican California for non-Mexicans to petition land. Now, you also had to indicate the amount of land and describe the location of the land. And in order to describe the location of the land, the petition included what was called a diseño. A diseño was a map that marked out the boundaries of the grants, and they usually involved a sketch of important landmarks, such as streams or rivers or thickets, and or the locations of Native American villages, which were called rancherias in Spanish. Now, because they were usually hand-drawn and without the benefit of specialized surveying tools, they were generally rough, approximate sketches, but they, they gave you a general idea of what was being requested. Now, the next step was called the informe. The governor would assign an official to examine and report whether the land actually was vacant and whether there were any reasons to not make the grant. The official's report, the official's reply was called in Spanish the informe, and it was either written on or attached to the petition that the grantee was requesting. And everything together was sent back to the governor. The governor, if he approved, would then issue the formal grant. Now, the governor was not the final authority. He had to communicate the news to the territorial assembly who made the laws for the territory. If the assembly did not approve, excuse me, if the assembly did not approve, then the governor was required to make an appeal to Mexico City, to the supreme government in Mexico City. So, once that was all done, the original petition, together with the informe, and a copy of the grant, provided the grant was, was approved, were filed in the archives of the Secretary of the Government. The petitioner got to hold on to the original copy, and all the papers that were filed, that were included together, were filed in one document called the Expediente. Right? So, as I mentioned, um, in Mexican California, hundreds of these grants were made um, during the 1830s, and in particular, the 1840s. One other thing I forgot to mention is that although um, Indian people were uh, from missions were automatically granted small uh, parcels of land, um, it was possible to request larger um, parcels, larger grants, and a number of um, Native Americans did request and receive grants. There are a few um, in Northern California and I believe some in Southern California as well. 
And um, you, you can also read about that. I have a uh, I have an article uh, about some of those in uh, Northern Alta California. Now, this whole land grant era, um, which which encompassed a couple of decades, really. Uh, came to an end with the U.S.-Mexico War. Now, or is also known as the Mexican-American War. Its roots, you know, lie in the secession of Texas from Mexico in the 1830s. But the war officially started in 1846. And as you also know, it ended with the U.S. victory and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. Most rancho owners in Alta California uh, supported um, defending Mexican California from the American invasion, but not all. Some, like uh, General Mariano Guadalupe Vallejo, were ambivalent or even supported uh, California becoming part of the U.S., and part of that was because the U.S. um, made the promise that people would be able to keep their lands, uh, the lands that they held prior uh, to the war. So at the end of the war, the U.S.-Mexico War, the governments of the United States and Mexico signed a treaty, which I mentioned, and that treaty decided the terms of what would become the territories that the U.S. acquired. And it also dictated what would happen to the people who lived there. Now, um, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, Included two, uh, wait a, in, included a couple of important considerations. First of all, Mexican citizens who lived in former Mexican territories were, according to the treaty, able to choose whether to stay in the U.S. or to move to Mexico. It to move to uh, Mexico as according to the new boundaries. If they chose to remain in what is now the U.S., they had the right to either remain citizens of Mexico or become U.S. citizens. In either case, according to Articles 8 and 9 of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, they would retain rights to all of their property, including their land. Although the treaty guaranteed rancho owners' rights, it actually wound up being very difficult to maintain that land after uh, the war ended and, and um, as California became incorporated into the United States. Many U.S. immigrants who came either seeking gold or, or because they, they heard about um, the beauty of California and also its emptiness in many ways, saw the ranchos simply as vacant land where they could build a home or start a farm themselves. And these immigrants vastly outnumbered the rancho owners, who of course protested that the newcomers had overrun their lands. And in fact, by 1850, you have a situation where there's a huge number of immigrants from um, east of California, um, English speakers, Anglo-Americans, and they had, um, in many ways, taken over um, much of the land that had been owned um, by Mexican citizens. So, in order to decide um, who actually should own the land, 
because, of course, uh, in U.S. law, possession, at least in U.S. Uh, jurisprudence, the thinking is that possession is nine-tenths of the law. Uh, the Congress, U.S. Congress, passed what was called the California Land Act in March of 1851. And this bill created a commission of three members appointed by the President of the United States. And the law required landowners to appear before the commission and show proof of ownership. That is that the um, if you held deed or uh, were the owner of a, a parcel of land in California, you needed to come and prove it. Now, if the commission didn't confirm the claim, then the owner could appeal to the U.S. District Court and go as far up as the Supreme Court. If the commission or the court confirmed the claim, then the land would have to be surveyed officially, and the government would issue a patent which proved that you were the rightful owner. Now, the commission, the U.S. Land Commission, and the courts, because many of these were appealed, ultimately confirmed most of the claims made um, to it, over 600 of them. But the irony is that most of the rancho owners wound up losing their lands anyway, because even when the commission approved the claims, the government attorneys would appeal the decision, and many Mexican Californians had difficulties in getting approval for their land surveys. On top of it, the average time that rancho owners had to wait after filing a petition for a decision was 17 years. And in order to pay all the legal fees involved in this long, drawn-out process, most wound up selling land. Um, Californios, uh, Mexican Californians at the time, many of them were, were rich in land, wealthy in land, but had very little cash. It was not a cash economy uh, prior to um, U.S. takeover. So how could they get cash in order to pay lawyers? Well, by selling land or by offering land to their lawyers in exchange for legal services. So by the 1870s, Mexican rancho owners had lost most of their lands. And you could really say the rancho era in California had become a memory. So this is just a brief overview of the Spanish and Mexican land grant process, which really in its details is fascinating. If you want to learn more about it, um, there's a great book called Land in California by W.W. W. Robinson. I'm going to have a link, uh, an Amazon link to that book. Now, it's not the newest book, but it's a classic, and um, it really details what the process of acquiring, owning, uh, losing land in California from the mission times to the 20th century was. So I recommend that book. There's also an interesting book by Gilbert Cruz called Let There Be Towns, Spanish Municipal Origins in the American Southwest. And it's a great introduction to how Spanish pueblos emerged, evolved, changed, were organized in the what is today the American Southwest. Once again, um, it's not a super recent book, but it's very helpful for understanding this. And to this day, 
there are families in California who um, trace their origins back to Spanish and Mexican times who are very aware of the fact that um, they lost large amounts of property with the change of governments. And um, even in real estate law to this day, if um, there's no governing principle to a land dispute, sometimes they have to go back and look at what were the laws in Mexican and Spanish California. So I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I hope you've enjoyed this um, this brief dive into the land grant situation in California. And I definitely love to hear more. If you if you have questions, if you have something to say about this topic, I'd love to hear it. You can uh, write me through the website, through um, our Facebook or Instagram accounts. And uh, once again, I apologize for my voice. But uh, I really thought it was important to share this information with you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the California Frontier Podcast. If you liked what you heard, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the California Frontier Project website at www.californiafrontier.net. If you have a question, a comment, or a suggestion, make sure and drop me a line at damian at californiafrontier.net.